Hello and welcome to One Real Good Thing, where we dive into one thing you can do today to propel your life in a healthy direction. I'm Ellie Krieger, and in this episode, I'm talking with Tamar Haspel, the James Beard Award-winning Washington Post columnist who tackles food from every angle, agriculture, nutrition, obesity, the food environment. She's also written for Discover, Vox, Slate, Fortune, Eater, and Edible Cape Cod. When she's tired of the heavy lifting of journalism, Tamar gets dirty. She and her husband grow their own tomatoes, catch their own fish, hunt their own venison, and raise their own chickens. If she tells you a mushroom is okay to eat, you can believe her. Which brings me to her one real good thing. Roll up your sleeves, go outside, and get some food. She's sharing why that's such a good thing to do, and she helps us find really easy ways to do it. Listen, Tamar Haskell, thank you so much for being here. I have to tell everybody this at the outset, that Tamar's writing on food and agriculture is something I lean on all the time. I always count on you for pulling apart issues that are so complicated and so scientifically deep and layered and being able to explain that in such a sound, balanced way um, I, in your work. I appreciate that so much. And, and I think if you're not following Tamar Haspel on Twitter, on Instagram, make sure you do that. We'll have the links to your handles on my website, um, but you can say them as well. But thank you so much for that and for being here today. That's like the nicest thing you can say to me. And we can start a mutual admiration society because I love the way that you take healthfulness and incorporate it into food without being overbearing about it and with a focus on joy and deliciousness. And so I love what you do. Thank you. I think we are both very much in the camp of no dogma, please. <laughs> um, so I think that really is something that binds us. Besides, um, I've had the opportunity to hang out with you and you're just fun. So that's a plus two. Um, but so I, I want to dig into your one real good thing. It is roll up your sleeves, go outside and get some food. And this notion is just makes me smile at the outset. And I would love for you to explain to us, what do you mean by that? So this is a concept that I didn't even know what a, it was a concept until I started doing it. And it's the idea that if you do put down your phone and roll up your sleeves and go outside and get dirty, gardening, fishing, foraging, hunting, and bring home something for dinner good things happen. And it's so funny because I, you know, I talk to gardeners, I talk to hunters, I talk to mushroom foragers, and I always ask them the same question. So does this food that you get with your own two hands and then bring home and feed to your family and your friends, does this food feel different from other food? And Every single person says, yes, this food feels different. But there wasn't even like a name for the category. There wasn't a name for that kind of satisfaction, which I think is a unique kind of satisfaction. So my husband and I started calling it firsthand food and we started getting it every which way from Sunday. And um, it, it, it started as just the simple project where we were trying to eat like one food a day that we got that way. And it, it turned out to be much more compelling than I ever thought it would be. 
And it really is compelling. And you lay it out so compellingly and funnily, if that's a word. If it's not a word, it should be a word. Um, In your book, To Boldly Grow, Finding Joy, Adventure, and Dinner in Your Own Backyard. So this book is amazing on so many different levels. And this is where your one real good thing comes from, essentially, here. So we'll dive in more. But the book really... each chapter actually touches on one of the ways that you can go outside and get food. So as you mentioned, gardening, fishing, you raise chickens, foraging, hunting. And what I love about it is it doesn't seem like, okay, well, that's sort of nice in theory. I mean, you really do it and you show where it goes wrong or what's the easy stuff to do. What's the, what's the low hanging fruit? What's the tougher stuff? And so I guess I want to tell everyone to get the book because it's so funny. And I was laughing my way throughout the whole thing. It just didn't good. tell them. You can tell them over and over, Ellie. I'm totally good with that. <laughs> so it's to boldly grow. But as you're rolling up your sleeves, going outside and getting some food, you're talking about how it feels different. And one of the things, my husband is a forager. He's an outdoor. He runs a nature school. And he's always bringing home a bag of something, a bag of dandelion greens, a bag of knotweed, a bag of mushrooms, a bag of berries. And literally, we live in New York City. So I know you live in in Nantucket and on Cape Cod, on Cape Cod. And so you're all you have. It seems like your environment is lends itself to that. So some people who live in cities might be saying, yeah, right. Not me. But that's not true. So I live in New York City. My husband's always from getting stuff in the parks and coming home with it. But I have to tell you the thing. It does feel different. It does feel different when he brings it home. And I make a mulberry tart from mulberries that he got in Central Park. But one thing that drives me crazy about it is that no matter what he makes from food he foraged or caught, because he's a fisherman and a hunter as well, no matter what he makes, it was always, oh my God, the best thing he ever had in his entire life. I could cook all day and he will compliment my cooking and likes it. But the minute he takes a bite of a mushroom that he foraged. Oh my God. I hear like moans of ecstasy and I'm like rolling my eyes in the background. Like, give me a break already. (laughs) How can every single thing you get be the best thing ever? But there is something to that. There is, there is a lot to that. And it's so funny that you should say that because in the book, I think that the thing that really got me was when we lived in New York and this is when this whole experiment started. And my husband who is a doer, whereas I am sort of an armchair, whatever. And he wanted to have a garden on the roof of the building. And so we got permission from the building manager. We put whiskey barrels up there and, you know, we used the the gratings over the skylights as cucumber trellises. And we had, we had these beautiful cherry tomatoes and I had never been a gardener. And I was like, okay, well, this is interesting. But then as soon as you have that first cherry tomato, you know, the one that's still warm from the sun and it has that tomato plant smell to it. And you eat that, you stand outside and you eat that. And you will swear in a court of law that it is the best tomato that the planet has ever seen. And so I am totally sympathetic to your husband's take on this, although I'm sympathetic to yours too, as someone who is cooking these wonderful things for him. And there is, there's a very particular pull that I think 
food that you get with your own hands has. And it makes sense that it would because feeding ourselves is like, you know, the second oldest evolutionary imperative. We don't survive as a species unless we do this. And so getting dirty in service of dinner, I think scratches a very particular primordial itch. It's reptilian, it's brainstem. It's different from other accomplishments like acing a test or getting a promotion or selling a book. It's this, it is, it is primal. And everyone I've ever talked to knows what that feeling is. And I want people who haven't experienced it to be able to experience it. And, and, and I think that that feeling has power to change, not just the way you eat, but even I think the way you are. And that's what surprised me about the whole enterprise. I completely agree, actually. And what I one of the things I find the benefits are, for me, even being aware of this and, and with my husband doing this and me learning from him and every walk we take, you know, he points out things that are edible. And I have clearly made this distinction. There's a difference between edible and good to eat. So I think there's that too. But nonetheless, um, I find it really brings you more in tune with the natural world and the natural cycle of, of the harvest and, and of food production in our environment. Uh, mm -hmm. I guess it's not production at that point, of, of food availability in our environment. And so this tuning into the natural world in this very palpable way, I find, is incredibly calming and gratifying. And right there, there's a benefit. Just that awareness, I think, is a benefit. I, you know, even just being outside. In fact, I'm writing about this right now because my column uh, for the, the next month is about some of these issues. And even just being outside is great. And putting down your phone, paying attention to the world around you is gives us a break from the things that tend to stress us out. And um, and when you take it one step farther and you start thinking about the food that's available, I think the effect that it can have on you is that it can recalibrate your sense of what food is. Because as we, as modern society, have gotten farther and farther away from the source of our food, we've sort of almost lost track of the idea that plants and animals are the foods that humans thrive on and and our sense of what food is has has moved toward you know boxes and bags the ones that have you know the bright colors and the exciting punctuation and spending actual quality time with plants and animals makes that pendulum that sense of of what food is move back toward those foods and sometimes the foods in the boxes and bags don't even look so much like food anymore. And you know, don't get me wrong, I, you can't leave me alone with a bag of Doritos, but it's like something that's in a different category from the food that we grow, the food that we cook, the food that we put on the table for, for our friends and our family. Yeah, I, I mean, I like to use the term ultra processed. So things that have been through really unrecognizable as food essentially in that way, um, still, you know, has its place. Right. In, in I agree. World, right. But nonetheless, and um, I don't want to turn the clock back on modernity. I think it's really good that we don't all have to get our own food. I don't want to return to a time when we do, because this frees us up to be, you know, uh, accountants and artists and writers and dental hygienists. And and we couldn't do that if we had to get our own food. So this is not about that. 
This is about selectively reintroducing these kinds of food acquisition activities for recreation and self-improvement yeah. <laughs> and fun. You know, you touch on something that you do talk about in your book is that, so some of that going out and getting food is really easy. And I want to talk about some of those steps, but some of it, you, you realized, wow, this is hard and this doesn't always work. And I'm lucky that I have a grocery store nearby or that I have a farmer who really knows how to do this. Um, and I think that that is another benefit of this is that it makes you appreciate the food systems that we have that are working and appreciate the food that you go to get in the grocery store or at the farmer's market from your local farmer in a different sort of way, because you know, kind of like, wow, my basil looked nothing like that. <laughs> Absolutely. And anyone who has like ever lost their cabbage crop to insects or got skunked on a fishing trip or sat in a tree stand <laughs> freezing cold all day with nothing to show for it, understands the value of having a steady supply of food. And I certainly don't want to take that away. And, you know, this isn't even about getting enough food to make a dent in your in your in your total caloric intake i think the year i kept track and kevin my husband and i spent an ungodly amount of time doing this and and the year i kept track i think we only got like 30% of our calories from food we got ourselves this is not about self sufficiency this is not about a hedge against uh, armageddon this is about you reconnecting with food acquiring new skills trying new things and you know aging brains and who among us does not have an aging brain aging brains thrive on new problems and when you go out and try and do this especially if you're me and you've never done any of it before every problem is new so it really checks a lot of boxes to roll up your sleeves go outside and get some food now Tell us the low-hanging fruit. Yeah, you talk about the low-hanging fruit. What are the easy-peasy things to do that are just, you step outside your door and you're probably going to just be able to glide into this? All right. I'm going to say that the number one thing to do, the easiest thing to do, it requires no resources, just a free afternoon, is to sign up to go on a mushroom walk with your local mycological society. And uh, almost every place has them. And if you live in a place that doesn't have them, you can get a guidebook and you can do this yourself. And I get why people shy away from wild mushrooms. I mean, the, the upside is a nice soup and the downside is an excruciating death. So the math just doesn't add up. But with very little knowledge, you can avoid the ones that are actually going to do you harm. And there are a lot of easy to identify, delicious mushrooms that will not steer you wrong. And you get to spend that afternoon outside. It's a great thing to do with kids. And your husband is right. That mushroom you bring home. And my husband and I still talk about this. So we found this, uh, well, we, uh, he. So, uh, all right, I have to go back a little bit. So my husband, when we lived in New York, was a commodity trader. He traded on the floor of the uh, New York Board of Trade. And as a commodity trader, I didn't know this, but it's great prep for mushroom hunting because it gives you bionic peripheral vision. So you're standing in this pit with all these guys, you know, yelling and signaling, 
and you have to know what's going on everywhere. And as a result, my husband can spot a mushroom on the side of the road as we drive by at 35 miles per hour. <laughs> and we'll and and you know, we'll be arguing about politics and he'll say, "Did you see that?" And I'll say, "No, of course I didn't see that." <laughs> and so we'll turn around and we'll go back and we'll look at this mushroom. And that's how we found this beautiful hen of the wood, which is one of the best wild mushrooms there is, um, growing at the base of a tree just outside a parking lot in Hyannis. And this is one way that mushroom hunting is kind of hell on your carbon footprint, because then from then on, whenever you're within a couple miles of the place, you have to go back to see if the mushroom's out again. And we still talk about that soup because it was spectacular. And we still look for those mushrooms. And, you know, the fact that you can still remember a meal that you foraged 10 years ago, um, I think is a testament to how powerful this is. Yeah, I love the idea of going on that mycology walk. Um, and they are, they're available everywhere. And then you have that kind of guide, um, but also something like fishing. I mean, that's something like I know a lot of people that love to fish and just being on the water, even if you catch nothing. I mean, as a kid, we were always fishing on Long Island and my, I used to pull up seaweed all the time and my dad would call it ribbon fish. And he, I was convinced that that was a type of fish. It was so sweet. But <laughs> I, bet, I bet you've caught the occasional stick fish also. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all kinds. But um, also I used to go um, uh, clamming when I was a kid and making, you know, and then having that clam sauce for dinner was like, I mean, as a kid, that's also how you get kids to engage in these co different kinds of foods is to let them help you with this. And I think my, I spent hours and hours of my childhood, literally physically with my hands digging for clams in the sand. I'm sure my parents just taught me how to do it to keep me occupied, but there was a real benefit. I taught my kids how to do it and they still do it. In fact, uh, over, I think it was New Year's, everybody was here, both of our kids who are grown now, and the whole family went out to Barnstable Harbor and it was a beautiful day and we had our clam rakes and our waiters and a whole bunch of people from the town were out there, families, dogs, and everybody's digging clams. And it's, it's this iconic Cape Cod thing to do. And, you know, you talk about doing it when you're a kid and the joy that it brings you, but we still do it as adults and it still brings us that joy. And we make that same clam pasta and we get that same feeling from it. And if you live in a place that, that, that clams are, it's a great thing to do. But, you know, there's another sort of element to, to that particular one, clamming and fishing also. One of the reasons that, that this whole enterprise surprised me is that it connected us to our community, to our neighbors in ways that we wouldn't otherwise have connected. When you're out in the clam flats and everybody's wearing boots or waders and everybody's digging and you start chatting, you meet people. When you go to the natural resources and you sign up to get your license, they give you the booklet and you talk to them about where the clams are and, and what to do. And, you know, we joined a fishing club and we met other people who like to fish. And, um, and I know, you know, we live on Cape Cod and we have world-class fish and we have lots of clams and that's not available to everybody, but you don't have to have that. If you live, you know, if you're landlocked, um, and even if you don't have any outdoor space, 
get one of those hydroponic herb gardens and put it on your windowsill and have that greenery come right into your house. Get one of those crazy mushroom kits where the oyster mushrooms come out the sides. Um, and you know, the th it's not the quantity of food that you procure. It's the act of, of procurement. Yeah, absolutely. And then also another community activity you could do if you're not near water or just alternatively is there are so many community gardens where you can participate in. If you live in New York, like I do, there are community gardens you can sign up to help cultivate the garden. And um, usually there's some type of herbs growing there, edible items growing there besides flowers and things, but you can participate in that. Um, so I think that's another one that can really bring together community, having a community, participating in a community garden like that. It's a great example. And, you know, we, we, although we have lots of garden space at our house, we have worked with the local gardening clubs. We joined the Cape Cod Organic Gardeners and we met other people who were doing some of the same things that we were. And, you know, it's so funny because there's, that there's this idea about, getting your own food that it that it, it it comes with some kind of ideology and maybe it's you know the crunchy granola opt out of the industrialized food system ideology or maybe it's the you know preparation and a, a a bulwark against armageddon ideology but i think that this is just an ordinary human activity that doesn't have to be linked to any particular ideology and people from all walks of life do all of these things um, because they're interesting. They're a constructive use of time. They're a way to get, you know, to show kids where food comes from. There's, there's a million reasons to do it and not all that many to not do it. So we're in spring and now's the time a lot of people are starting their gardens. What are the easiest things to grow in a garden? Because I know you have a lot of, I love part of what I love about your book is you talk about really practical tips. There's like, to do, you know, checklists of like, try this and, and tips for doing things like gardening, raising chickens and so on. But then there's also great stories about how things went wrong and, and sort of just really funny stuff going on. But in terms of like the easiest things to grow, if you were just starting your garden and you just didn't know where to begin, where do you start? Well, gardening is even more local than politics. And so it totally depends on where you live, what kind of soil you have, whether you have a lot of sun. Uh, Kevin and I live in a really challenging place because our soil is sand. We have a lot of shade. We have a lot of hills. And, you know, we've done a couple of strategic raised beds and we've learned a lot. But if you're going into it for the first time, I would start with herbs. I would start with a mix of perennial herbs like you know, sage and thyme and oregano and then annual herbs, well, or biannual parsley and, and basil. Um, and those are good for a number of reasons. First, um, you're likely to be able to harvest at least some of them. <laughs> and I, I, some of those are gonna come up and they're gonna produce for you. But second, herbs are, are some of the most satisfying things to use because Usually when you go to the grocery store, you have to spend $1.99 to get way more than you need. But if you have it growing in the garden, you just go out and you snip the two little branches of tarragon that you need to put in your soup and you don't end up with, with the big pile of it that is way more than you need and often ends up getting wasted. 
And so it's satisfying on a whole lot of levels and it's a quick return. But I would also say, definitely try tomatoes because the the payoff is so good. Not everything you grow yourself is going to taste better than the version that you get in the grocery store. I have grown some of the woodiest damn green beans you've ever eaten in your life. But the <laughs> tomatoes are likely to be better than anything that you can buy. So you definitely want to go with those. So I would start with that. I would start with herbs and tomatoes. And then the next thing I'd go with is, is, is cucumbers. And somebody else will tell you to go with zucchini, but I am not a huge zucchini fan. So I don't go in that direction. But that's another actually thing to keep in mind. Go with foods you like. Great, great advice. I, I knew you would have great advice. And you did. In fact, I don't know if there's anything else you want to add. Um, well, yes, there's a million things I want to add, <laughs> but I will restrain myself. And, you know, whatever you do, it's going to be the starting point for the next thing you do. So you'll figure out a lot about gardening the first time you garden. And then the second time you'll go in knowing those things that you figured out the first time and you'll learn the next thing. So it's sort of, it does build on itself. All right, but I can't resist one more tip. Um, <laughs> Onions, the onion family, onions, garlic, leeks. Um, these are great to grow because they grow easily. Leeks grow from seed, which is super easy. And insects and deer don't like them. So, so that leaves them all for you. Oh, my goodness. Well, thank you, Tamar, for inspiring us to roll up your sleeves, go outside and get some food, and for giving us some really practical ways to start. And... I just really appreciate all your work and you being here. And I hope everyone checks out the book to boldly grow. Well, thanks, Ellie. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks for listening. I hope you are as inspired as I am to get outside and get some food. Join me next time for another one real good thing. <laughs>